may be seated this morning. Uh, I want to dismiss those in Kids City up through fifth grade. You can head out. And also, if you are one of the ones taking starting point this morning, you can also head up to our teen room. If you go out to the lobby, there'll be people directing you up there. We have several that are taking starting point this morning and uh, excited about how God is working in our church life. Take your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 6. Mark, chapter 6. We're reading in just a moment. Something worth dying for. You might remember a number of years ago when uh, the U.S. was part of a uh, coalition of forces that were uh, invading Iraq and deposing of uh, Saddam Hussein. And uh, not all Americans were in favor of that war. We're not getting into the politics of any of that today. Uh, but there were some protesters that they were interviewing on the news that were uh, angry about the America going to war over there. And they interviewed an, an angry man on the street and asked him why he opposed the war. He said, nothing's worth dying for. I have to disagree with that this morning because I believe that we're going to look at our passage this morning and understand that there are some things worth dying for. In fact, you think of the millions of American men and women who have given their life for our freedom so that we can gather corporately and worship this morning and so we can have an opportunity to uh, share the good news of Jesus Christ outside of these walls on the streets around our city and, and places all around our, our area. Flashback uh, just a few years from the last few years when ISIS was reigning terror over the Middle East. And uh, uh, they remembered some of the videos that were released of, uh, there were British citizens and American citizens being beheaded. And, and all of that hit the internet and, and people were just terrified. They were people living in terror as they were uh, taking their lives and they were doing it on video as a way to recruit radical Muslims to join their calls. And, and you can only imagine what it must have been like for a parent to see their child, uh, their life being taken from them. But this kind of barbaric activity had been a part of the Roman Empire, Roman culture uh, for centuries, a, a part of the Middle East for centuries. And the Romans executed uh, criminals and slaves by crucifixion. Uh, they executed uh, uh, their own citizens in what they considered a more, more uh, uh, merciful punishment by uh, being beheaded, and you can only imagine. Tradition tells us that the Apostle Paul was beheaded in Rome. Uh, and in Acts chapter 12, we read Herod Agrippa uh, killed the Apostle James with the sword, and that was referring to beheading. And in our text this morning, we're going to look at the story of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was also beheaded. And you say, Pastor, this is pretty gory, but if you'll hang on to your seat for just a moment... There, there's a progression, but we see the power of God on display in his life and in his death. And we see the, the glory of God revealed uh, through such a, a testimony. This message is going to be a little bit different. We're going to uh, read a portion of scripture. I want to introduce the characters of the story. I want to set the stage, so to speak, for the drama that we're going to look at in scripture. And uh, even besides the word of God, all throughout history... There's numerous stories that talk about the characters uh, in this particular passage in Mark chapter 6. And we're going to uh, primarily uh, Jewish historian Josephus writes about it. In addition, we have other additional historical information 
from church father Jerome, uh, Roman historians, to see this, Cassius Dio. Uh, but I want us to primarily focus right now on Mark chapter 6. So we're going to pick up where we left off a couple, some, a couple weeks ago. In Mark chapter 6, we'll pick up in verse 14. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So this is Jesus we're talking about, but some people were saying that Jesus was John the Baptist. Others said he's Elijah. Others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. So he thought that John the Baptist had come back to life and it was Herod who had sit and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing uh, that he was a righteous and holy man. He kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly the story we're going to look at let's look at the that's the background but let's look at some of the characters in the story and i think this story has been the subject of of hundreds of works of art in fact if you travel and and look at different art museums and uh you'll see depictions of this uh, story of john the baptist and uh, there's one uh, particular uh, painting that's uh, very famous where john the baptist is pointing at herod and Herod's looking away. He can't even look at John the Baptist because he, he knows uh, that he's convicted. And there's, there's a conviction because he, struck, he took his life. Herod can't make eye contact with him. But there's two women, uh, are Herodias and her daughter. We're going to learn more about uh, both of them. But let's look at each of these characters. First of all, we look at Herod Antipas. And uh, he was an arrogant ruler. Uh, he was uh, quite the character. In fact... The name Herod was more like a family name. It meant heroic, and uh, there weren't any heroes uh, in this line or in this bunch, but it can be confusing because there was no less than eight Roman rulers referred to as Herod. Uh, his name was Herod uh, Antipater, and which his, the nickname was Antipas, and he was one of the sons of the ruler that we refer to as Herod the Great. And so you can imagine... Uh, the name was uh, common in that culture, and I had a, a friend growing up, his name was James, and his father's name was James, and I'd call their house, and his mom would always say, well, which one? Uh, so we're saying, which, which Herod is this? It's Herod Antipas, he's not Herod the Great, he was one of the sons of the ruler, and uh, we're, one born, he was born king of the Jews, uh, Herod the Great was the ruler uh, that the wise men uh, came seeking uh, the Messiah who had been born. And so Herod was a great builder. He had a great capacity of hatred and violence. And he attempted to kill the Messiah. And by ordering that, all the males uh, in Bethlehem would be slaughtered. So that was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was paranoid. He was jealous. He ordered the death of several of his wives and several of his sons. The Jewish rabbis made a joke it was safer to be Herod's uh, uh, pig than it was to be Herod's son. He was most more likely to keep his life than, uh, than his own son. Herod the Great was plotting the murder of his son Antipas when he, was, he himself was killed. So Antipas was the name of a ruler of four small areas 
So he was called Herod the Tetrarch. His name was Herod, the Te uh, Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch. He always wanted to be called a king. So to be more like a king, uh, Antipas married an older Arabian princess, the daughter of King Aretas IV, and he married her for her royal connection. Now, some of you are like, okay, I've taken history in high school, I've taken history in college, and my wife's often saying, she's like, don't bore us with all of those uh, boring details, but the reality is it's important to understand what's going on. So we see that's the line kind of that Herod uh, Antipas comes from. Then we look at Herodias, and uh, so we see she was a wicked woman. She was the Jezebel of the New Testament, and Jezebel, wanted the head of the prophet, Eli prophet Elijah, but she wasn't successful. Why? Because God took him out in a chariot of fire. And uh, wouldn't you love to have been present to watch that take place? And uh, as he did not die on this earth, God took him out uh, in grand fashion in a, a chariot of fire. And uh, Philip wasn't in the, uh, and so we see all of this was taking place. His granddaughter, uh, she's the granddaughter of Herod the Great. She visits Rome. And Herodias meets Philip, the half-brother of Antipas, all right? So she goes, and, and, and Philip wasn't into politics. He was a wealthy Roman businessman. And Herodias goes and seduces her much older uncle Philip, and they run off and get married. And so it's, it's a crazy story. And uh, one way that uh, Antipas left his, uh, one day he left his uh, Arabian princess wife, visited his half-brother Philip in Rome, and Herodias had grown tired of her husband, so she seduced Antipas, her brother-in-law, who was also her uncle. You can, the story, the scandal is, is like the Kardashians uh, in, in our day. It's, it was quite crazy what was happening. Uh, and so if you try to figure out all the details, Antipas and Herodias elopes, they go back to Galilee, and Antipas uh, and the Arabian princess had gotten word of the scandal. And so before her husband could return with his younger trophy mistress, mistress, they were forced to divorce. And she packed up her bags. She runs home to her dad, who vowed to extract vengeance on his two-timing son-in-law. So all of this is it's a great, crazy story. And then we see Herodias' daughter. Her name is Salome, and she was... Uh, a victim, really, of, of the circumstances of, of her family and of her parents. This daughter of Herodias and Philip is not named in, in the scriptures, but Josephus tells us her name was Salome. The really sad thing about Salome is that the word is used to describe her. She was a very young teenager, probably even a preteen, 12 years old. I have a 12-year-old daughter. I can't imagine her going through all of this and living through this and witnessing all of these crazy details. The really sad thing about Salome is, is she was described as uh, she's not married of marriage age uh, in that time, which was about 16 years old. And so, but uh, the same word is used for Salome to describe the daughter of Jairus, who was only 12 years old. Her wicked mother used her as a pawn to get to John the Baptist, and we're going to look, learn more about that. Then we see John, God's faithful servant, the faithful prophet, uh, John the Baptist. And he is six months older than his cousin uh, Jesus. Like Samson, John had taken a Nazarite vow and had never cut his hair or beard. Uh, I was thinking uh, as I was 
reading through and studying uh, this passage, he had nothing. Uh, the, the Duck Dynasty brothers, the Robinson brothers, had nothing on John the Baptist. I mean, his hair had never been cut. You can imagine the beard. I mean, Santa Claus has nothing on John the Baptist. But uh, he uh, was uh, a burly, beastly man. And, uh, but like, Sam, like Samson, um, John had, had taken this Nazarite vow. And so you can imagine, um, you know, he ate, uh, lived in the wilderness. He was a man of the, of, the, uh, of the land. He ate locust and wild honey and wore camel's hair as a garment. He, was bat- he baptized Jesus, uh, even though Jesus, uh, uh, he, he thought he was unworthy of baptizing Jesus. He was a Baptist preacher. And John publicly was preached, he preached that it was both illegal and immoral for Herod to be sleeping with his niece and his sister-in-law. And so the public disgrace infuriated Herodias. She demanded that Herod kill him. Can't you just imagine her whining and say, it's either him or me. Him or me. I'm going to leave you if you don't get rid of John the Baptist because he's preaching that what they're doing is not only illegal, it's immoral. So you can imagine, uh, you know, Herod's got quite a... uh, a, 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 a quandary on his hand, so to speak, as he's trying to think through all the process, how to keep his wife happy, uh, who he shouldn't be married to in the first place. And you can just imagine, uh, you've got to kill him. This, shut this Baptist preacher up. Uh, he's, he's telling all of our family secrets. And Herod recognized that John was a man of God. And so to make his wife happy, he had John arrested and thrown into prison and said, well, maybe she'll forget about John the Baptist. He's not going out preaching any longer. He's not telling all of our stories. And so he, he thinks he's appeasing his wife. Then we see the action in, in uh, verse 21. Remember, this part of the world was famous for, and known for brutality. They were known for violence. And, and so there's two scenes that we'll see in our text here. Beginning in verse 21, there's a birthday party that's taking place. It's Herod's birthday. Last night we celebrated my dad's uh, 80th birthday, and now all the family came in. But Herod's having a birthday, and so all of his family, all of his friends are coming in to celebrate. And there's a great feast. There's drinking. There's dancing. There's all of these things that are taking place that you would imagine would take place at a high-profile birthday party. Herodias saw it as an opportunity to get what she finally, what she ultimately wanted. She wanted John the Baptist killed. She wanted to have him taken out. And verse 21 says, an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and, her, and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Wow, that must have been, whew, I don't even want my mind to go there, but it's crazy. And he says, he was so pleased that he says, I'll give you anything you ask. It's kind of like, you know, a child that you have that does something, you're like, man, uh, I want to reward you for making straight A's. Uh, we need to pray for, by the way, our college students, some of them. But to them are in final exams this week and be praying for them, praying for our uh, seniors and getting ready. They're wrapping up all their final reports and projects and, and, and wrapping up, getting ready to, to graduate. But 
you know, as you can imagine, uh, as a parent, sometimes we reward our kids for good behavior. He says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. Just say it, and I'll give you whatever it is you want. The funny thing about Herod is he didn't even have a kingdom to give her. He was Herod the Tetrarch. He was a ruler over four provinces, but he was not a king. He didn't have anything really to give away, but he was trying to, to please his crowd. And he was the man who wanted to be king. And, and so Salome ran back to her mother in verse 24. She said, what should I ask for? What should I ask for? And she's probably thinking, I want a horse. I want a pony. I, I want, you know, I want, all, you, you can only imagine what a 12-year-old is, is thinking. My daughter's thinking, you know, I, and there's a, a, a pumpkin, the alpaca, you know, that's running around Fuquay and, 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 and getting everybody excited about seeing this alpaca. Maybe she says, I want an alpaca. I want, I want pumpkin. I mean, I, when you can have everything, anything you want, and you're a child, what do you ask for? I mean, and so you're, you're over the top excited. And, and what does she say? What should I ask? Her wicked mother came up with a plan. She says, tell him you want the head of John the Baptist on a large platter. Tell him you want to have the head of John the Baptist. In verse 25, she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I'm sure Herod who was pretty inebriated at that point because they had been partying and drinking and, and Herodias was, was, she was, cru it was crucial that she was waiting until he was kind of at a, a weak moment of judgment. And, and she says, I actually want Herod, uh, Herod, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod is thinking to himself, no, of all the things, this is a man of God. He was terrified at the thought, and you know, wouldn't you rather have a horse or chariots or crown jewels, whatever? At, no, I want his head on a platter. And Herod had made an oath in front of his guest. He would lose face if he didn't keep his promise. So he decided it was better for John to lose his head than for him to lose his face. So just, just think through the, 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 the whole process. We see the second, two, the second scene is the dungeon scene. Remember, John had been put in prison by Herod, and so he hears the soldiers approaching, and he's probably wondering what's happening. I haven't heard any, uh, I haven't heard any commotion in a while. What's, what's going on? And all of a sudden, he sees the sword, and I guarantee you he's, things are starting to, the pieces of the puzzle are coming together. Verse 27, immediately the king, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison. Brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. You see... What turned out was a, originally a, 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 a celebration, a time of, of great excitement, quickly turned tragic as John the Baptist's life was taken from him. We see there's some life lessons in our text and in the story. There's some lessons that we can learn from each one of these characters. Herod, we can learn that a guilty conscience is a cruel companion because... Herod would never get over this. 
It would haunt him for the rest of his life. In fact, months later when Herod heard about the miracles of Jesus, he was certain that it was John the Baptist who would come back to haunt him later in life. God had given, God's given each one of us a conscience. And folks, he tells, he shows us from within what's right and what's wrong because we know there are certain things that are, are wrong. And you say, Pastor David, why is it that they want to take the Ten Commandments out of courtrooms? Let me tell you why. Because it tells us that thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. All of those things are in Scripture. And when they're plastered on a wall in a courtroom and a jury is sitting out there, something is convicting about the fact that God's Word says it is wrong. Can I get a witness this morning? So what you're saying is... Yeah, we have a conscience that God gives us, and, and, and there's, uh, it was, he was guilty. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. And what's that next word, church? Just. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to do what, church? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love the fact that when Jesus died on the cross he completely paid for all of my sins past present and future he died on the cross for all of our sins and that guilty conscience we are guilty of sin but folks if you know jesus christ is your lord and savior he forgives us and he cleanses us and he makes us justified before god and you know what that word justified means just as if i had never sinned that's how God views me as his child. He's adopted me into his family and we're justified. You can, you can live a life free of guilt when you know Christ is your savior. Uh, uh, Pastor uh, Johnny Hunt, all, his, his life lessons, what he always tells people, he says, live close and live clean. Live close to God and spend our time getting know God to know God and have a close relationship and, and keep a short sin account with God. In other words, confess daily or often throughout the day your sins to keep a close relationship with God. So he had promised to, to separate us, our sins as far as the east is from the west. And folks, Herod was, was troubled by what he had accomplished, what he had done. But then we see not only Herod, we see life lessons of Herodias. Hateful anger will spill out and hurt all of those around us. Sometimes we think, you know what? My sin doesn't affect anybody else. That's a lie from the devil. Pastor David, nobody else knows. It's not going to affect anybody else. It's just between, it's just me. And you know what? I can confess that to God and I'm good. I can live like a clean life. No, that's not. It affects everyone around us. It's like dropping a, a rock in the, in the, in the river. And the, a few weeks ago, we were up in the mountains and uh, some of these guys were, were skipping rocks. And I wasn't that great at it. I think Paul and, and John uh, did a really good, eight or ten skips across the river. And, and I was sitting here going, how do you do that? Am I doing it? just plops right there in the, in, the, in the river. But they're skipping it all the way across the whole river. And, you know, you could, it has a ripple effect. It affects every single person around us. And that's what uh, Herodias' sin, her anger spilled out and affected her husband. Her daughter, it's a sad principle. In effect, our sin doesn't just affect us. 
It affects everyone around us. His scorned wife who returned to her father, the Arabian king, two years after Jesus was crucified, the father of his ex-wife, King Eridus, attacked Antipas. And he slaughtered his soldiers. He conquered his territories. And in shame, Antipas and Herodias fled to Rome. Antipas was his uh, jealous nephew, Herod Agrippa, the king, the brother of Herodias, had convinced the emperor that Antipas was, a, was, was guilty of treason. So Antipas, the man who wanted to be king, was stripped of all of his titles, all of his property, and he was banished in exile in Gaul. The worst part of it is he was punished and sent away. They sent away Herodias with him. <laughs> he was stuck with her in exile on an island for the rest of his life. And folks, they're, they're, they died in obscurity and they were buried in unmarked graves. Here's a man who thought he was all that and, and was, was striving to be, he wanted to be a king one day, wanted all this power, wanted all of this authority, and he dies in exile and no one even knows where he's buried. So, well, what happened to Salome? I'm glad you asked. Numbers chapter 32 says, be sure your sin will find you out. In other words, when you look at her life, the story of Herod's family was fascinating to the Romans. In fact, like the stories of the Roosevelt's and the Kennedys are here in America, the, the story of Herod and his family uh, was one that people like to study and history like to record. It, history records that Salome's life was filled with tragedy. She moved back to Rome and where she went through several feral marriages. According to Cassius Dio, Salome died tragically when she was vacationing in the Northern Alps. She and her party were crossing a frozen river. Folks, don't miss this. And when you talk about God gets vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. You don't have to carry out vengeance on those who do uh, evil against you. God has a way of just settling things. So when they're crossing a icy river, frozen river, the ice cracked. In the efforts to extract her from the frozen water, a jagged piece of ice severed her head from her body. When I read that, I was like, whoo, the hairs on my arms kind of stood up going, wow, talk about God settling the score. I mean, John the Baptist might have lost his head on a platter, but today his, his history and his story continues on as he's calling people to repent. And, and, and turn to the gospel of the kingdom of God. But Salome's life was snuffed from her body. And her head was severed in a tragic accident. And it's a reminder of Galatians 6-7. For whatever one sows, that he will also, what church? Reap. It's, it's, it's crazy to think of what took place. But then we look at, what was the lesson from John's life? What was the, the, the purpose? There are things worth dying for. Title of the message is something worth dying for. There are things in life worth dying for. Remember that protester that we mentioned that says there's nothing worth dying for? He was wrong. In fact, I can think of many things that are worth dying for. Our freedoms that we have as, as Americans, we enjoy freedom of worship today without fear of someone coming through those doors and 
and arresting us and putting us in prison for our faith. And folks, there are places all over the world where you cannot do that. May we never take that for granted. May we never become so uh, calloused and cold that we say, you know what, I don't need to go to church. I can just, you know, sit back and just kind of coast through this life without God. And I don't need the church. No, if you are truly a child of God, you're going to want to be a part of his church. That's a part, a privilege that we have and something we should never take for granted. The freedoms that we have are worth dying for. There are thousands and millions of, of, of people who have died fighting for our freedoms in our, as our nation. And the second thing is worth dying for is our friends and family. I tell you, you come between me and my kids and my family, my wife, you're going you're gonna to be probably bringing back a, a nub or, or, or maybe uh, it won't be a lot, around much longer. But uh, let's just say it like that. Don't attack my family because we're going to protect it. And I, I would guarantee you, every mom and dad or grandparent is thinking the same thing this morning. Don't, don't mess with my family. You can say whatever you want to about me, but don't attack my family. The reality is there are things worth fighting for. Friends and family are worth fighting for. And in John 15, verse 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus went to the cross to die, even though he was a sinless Savior. He went to the cross and took your place. He took my place on the cross, and folks, he, so that we wouldn't have to die. Chuck Colson told the story of a group of World War II American prisoners of war who were sentenced to hard labor in a Japanese uh, prison camp. And each one of them was given a, a shovel, and all day long they were digging and digging and digging. And at the end of the day, they had to turn in their shovel at uh, the end of their work session. One evening, 20 American prisoners of war were lined up, and, and, and the guard counted all the shovels. And that particular day, the guard counted only 19 shovels. He turned in rage toward the POWs and demanded to know which prisoner had kept his shovel. No one said anything, so he says, in just a moment, I'm going to kill the first five of you if someone doesn't come forward. There was a brief pause, and a 19-year-old young man steps up with his head down. The story says that he aimed and shot and fired and killed him. He reminded him, he says, every day you have to turn your shovel back in at the end of your work assignment. He once again counted the shovels and realized there were 20 shovels all there. He had made an error. He mistakenly counted 19, but he had miscounted. There were actually 20. The young soldier had died for his friends. I wonder this morning, would you like to have a friend like that that would stand up and give their life for you? The reality is, is that took place. And Jesus took our place. He stood up and says, I will die on the cross for the sins of the entire world. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, of every tribe, every nation, every nationality. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and made possible a right relationship with God. 
and it wasn't some split second decision. Jesus came to die on Calvary's cross. He came to take our place. He laid down his life for you, his friends. But the final thing worth dying for, folks, is your faith. John the Baptist had pointed to Jesus and said in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. John said that, Jesus said that John was more than a prophet. In fact, he said, among men born of women, and if you think through that statement, that's all of us. Among, among men born of women, he says, John was the greatest. And there was none greater than John. So Jesus was saying, of all the people in the Old Testament period, John was the greatest, more than Abraham, more than Moses, more than Elijah. John the Baptist is even greater. So John stood for the truth of his faith, and he ended up dying for his faith. The moment that that sword removed his head from his body, John was transported into heaven, into the presence of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Say, Pastor, what is the application this morning? Freedom, family, and faith are at least three things worth dying for this morning. Freedom, family, and, and faith are, are at least three things. Would you be willing to die for your faith? I'm not answer, asking you to answer that out loud. But think about it this morning. Would you be willing to die for your faith? Warren Wiersbe tells a, a story from China during the communist purge of Mao in 1949 and churches were closed Christians were arrested and executed and Wiersbe tells the story of a small group of Christians that were meeting in an underground church in, in private and says suddenly the door flew open and three communist soldiers are standing there with weapons drawn they all ordered all of the Christians to line up against the wall to be executed the soldiers said, if you're not a believer, you're, you're free to go. The story said that some of the group hurried out of the room, but the group of faithful followers of Jesus joined hands and they stood together waiting to die for their faith. When the unbelievers left, the soldiers lowered their weapons and said, we're believers too, and we wanted to find a group of Christians who are willing to die for their faith. And they said, can we join you? Yeah, I'm afraid that life has been so easy, and I'm, when we think of the suffering that has happened all over the world and what's happening, and Ukraine right now and places around the world where people's faith is being put to the test every single day. We don't even know what that's like, church. We, we, we treat Christianity, we treat the Christian life so flippantly like if there's nothing else going on, I guess I'll go to church. If there's 
If it's not raining, because, you know, we don't get out of the rain and we all melt. <laughs> if it's not too hot, you know, because, I mean, we don't have air conditioner in the church. I mean, I, if it's not a bright sunny day, because I want to be on the golf course or on the boat. Uh, if, I, if there's nothing, no ball games, no, you know, playoffs for the, the hurricanes or none of the other stuff that we could possibly do, I guess I'll go to church. But folks, we've reduced our faith to just a casual Christianity that I'll take or leave just based on there's anything else better to do. John was willing to die for his faith. And folks, it's convicting because I would dare say if we were put in that situation with those communists in communist China, with those Christians, there'd be a lot of people that would be like, ooh, hit the doors as quick as possible. But folks, will we be willing to die for our faith? I pray it doesn't come to that church, but folks, you know what? The church actually thrives in persecution. The church of Jesus Christ grows in times of persecution, some of the, the most uh, vibrant Christians are not in the United States of America that can praise and worship and lift their hands and glorify God. They're living in, in underground churches, worshiping and, and praying like never before. And I think some of the greatest saints of God are probably not the pastors of the churches, but they're the faithful people who are on their knees praying and living out their faith on an everyday basis. Church, God is calling us to rise up. He's calling us to be the church, to go out of these doors and love our neighbors like Christ loved us and to be an example of faith, hope, and love to a world that's dying to know Jesus. Do you know Christ? Do you have a relationship with him? If not, that's your next step. The next step is to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But say, Pastor, if you know Christ is your Savior, why not step up and, and make it public and, and be baptized? Why not join a, a local New Testament church where you can plug in and use your gifts and talents and ability? Why not serve? Why not give you know, generously? Why not be a part of making a difference in our city, declaring the name of Jesus? in the triangle and to the world. What if God would, what, what could he do with a group of people this size this morning that would say, I am fully devoted. I would die for my faith. I will stand up on the street corner and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God challenge us this morning. May, may he change our heart and in Give us the passion to reach our city and our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, would you speak to hearts this morning?